people talk about older people now the way they talked about women 50 years ago. They say, oh, you're too weak to do that. You're too fragile. You should take care. You should be careful. You might have a heart attack. You might fall down. You might hurt yourself. You should take easy when you retire and sit on the sofa for once. Those are all the worst things people can do. And they, they say that to old people because they, they think that we're like women were 50 years ago, weak and fragile. <laughs> Welcome to Power Up Your Performance, where we talk about how you can learn to think, feel, perform, and live like a champion. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Kim Peek. I am the hostess for Power Up Your Performance. I am so excited for you to listen to this interview that I did with Katherine Switzer. Sports history changed in 1967 when Katherine officially registered and finished that Boston Marathon. She was not the first woman to run a marathon, but she was the first to register. It was still a men's only event in those days, and Switzer's entry created a worldwide uproar when the race director attacked her mid-stride and tried to tear off her bib numbers and remove her from the event because she was a woman. The photo of this incident flashed around the globe and became one of Time Life's 100 photos that changed the world. Radicalized by the incident, Switzer campaigned for sports equality for women and created opportunities for them. She has been honored widely for her achievements, including being inducted into the USA National Women's Hall of Fame for creating positive social change. She is relentless in her efforts to empower millions of women beyond the finish line, now through her nonprofit, 261 Fearless, and in her example. 50 years after she first challenged the previously all-male rules of the Boston Marathon, she trained hard and ran the prestigious event again, and only 24 minutes slower than she did at age 20. She is now the first woman in history to have run a marathon 50 years after her first one. More significantly, she is joined by an enthusiastic team of women who run with her in celebratory fundraising efforts to globally support 261 Fearless. Catherine is interviewed a lot, and the story of her first Boston Marathon is widely documented. So I didn't want to make her tell a story that she has already told in great detail and told so perfectly in videos and on her website. So I am going to link to those in the show notes so you can make a point of learning more about this incredible woman and athlete. But before we get started, I do want to share just a few more details about that race that made her famous. People sometimes wonder if she ran that first Boston Marathon illegally or if she disguised herself as a man. In her press kit, Catherine says, I was very proud of being a woman. I had long hair, wore lipstick and eyeliner to the start line. I was wearing a very nice shorts and top outfit, so I'd look good. But because the weather conditions were miserable... 34 degrees, snowing and sleeting, I had to leave my baggy gray sweatsuit on. I'd planned on only wearing that to warm up in and then discard it, as most athletes do before a race. It was my worst-looking warm-up suit, too. All the men around me knew that I was a woman. The morning of the race, it was not only snowing and sleeting, but also very windy and very cold, and everyone looked alike in their baggy gray sweatsuits, including me. So perhaps officials didn't notice me then. If it had been a hot day 
and I was only wearing the shorts and top, history might have been changed. It seems shocking today when women make up 47% of all marathon participants in the U.S. that a woman would be attacked for running a marathon. Catherine definitely paved the way for all of us that day. People wonder why the official attacked her in the first place, and she says, The official claimed the race was a men's-only race and that I was not allowed to run. He was very angry that I had obtained an official bib number, and he lost his temper. But that also makes us wonder, right? Back then, why was the Boston Marathon a men's-only race? And the answer really is that it was different times, and Catherine really paved the way for us. She says... Nowadays, it's an interesting question, as there were no real rules in 1967 stating that the marathon was for men only, nor was there anything indicating gender on the entry form. But almost all sports were for men. Women rarely participated. Most people assumed that women could not run the marathon distance and that if they tried, they would hurt themselves. Most women themselves were not interested in running for the same reason, and many people also believed that difficult sports made women masculine. In 1967, the longest event in the Olympic Games for women was 800 meters on the track, and cross-country races for women were one and a half miles. So, with that background information, I bring you my interview with Katherine Switzer. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, Kim. So I thought I would ask you some questions that hopefully you don't get asked constantly. I thought maybe though we would just start off with asking, what are you doing for fun these days? Well, I'll tell you, this will blow your mind about fun. Um, I'm actually cleaning my house. (laughs) Um, and today was the first day in about six months. Uh, I mean, I have a a housekeeper that comes in and vacuums and dusts and cleans the bathroom, you know, because otherwise we'd fall apart, but the house is stacked with papers, clippings, um, photographs, um, Adidas clothes and running shoes. And I have to sort this out. And so it's fun to go through it all, but it's, um, it's also cathartic. So that's fun for me because that's something I never get to do. <laughs> and it's amazing because, you know, we like to think that world-class runners have these glamorous lives and you're saying that you're just like all the rest of us and you have piles to go through too. Well, yes. And unfortunately, it really looks like a hoarder lives here. And the, the problem with that is, is that when you come home from a hard trip or a hard run, you know, you have a nice house and all, but it, it's, it's a mess. And, and it really is very stressful. It finally gets to you. You know, that's it. Yeah, that's Gotta funny. go. <laughs> I totally understand. So you started running, I think I saw at the age of 12, but you were doing it so you could make your school's field hockey team, right? Absolutely. Um, but also because, I, you know, I was, I was looking for something that, that – uh, Oh, I don't know, you know, to fit in in high school, you know? That's important. Yeah. So when did you really start to love running? When did you realize that was your thing? Probably about two weeks into running a mile a day, getting ready for that field hockey team. And I realized after two weeks in a Washington, D.C. summer of running 
that some days are easy and others impossible. But no matter what, when I came in from the run, I felt so accomplished and so full of confidence. It made all the difference in my life. So um, I really, I just wanted to, um, I just really wanted to keep on going. That's, that's when I realized it was a magic thing. I love that because it's one of the things that everybody can get from running almost immediately once they, once they start making that a habit. So it's awesome just to hear that reinforcement from you. One of the big things that came out of the 1967 Boston Marathon was that you proved that women are not fragile and that we're every bit as capable of running as men are. And this has been a big part of your life's work. Can you tell us just a little bit about some of the ways that you've worked for women's equality? Yeah, it's really interesting. After the Boston Marathon, the situation was that um, it, it became a, as much a civil rights issue as it was a, a running issue. And um, so really, it was very important to give women the equality uh, and the opportunity to run, not only to believe in themselves, but to, to show the world that women could absolutely do it. So, the, the, you know, you start small. You know, Anne Merrill Lindbergh said that you can't water the entire world if you've only got a sprinkling can. So start with your own community. So I did that. I was a student at Syracuse, and we began uh, forming a, a, a running club there that became big and exciting and powerful. And the uh, women were invited, and we had big road races, and we vowed, um, uh, we vied for national championship status, and we got some of those. And then uh, I went on from there. I went to Europe. I wanted to figure out. Um, how we could parlay getting women official in the Boston Marathon into getting women into the Olympic Games. And I was fueled by what I saw in Europe and the enthusiasm there and the sponsorship opportunities that, that came out of the Munich Olympics, as well as other terrible things, of course, that came out of the Munich Olympics. Um, it was it was a real wake-up experience, just let me put it that way. But anyway, when I came back, I wrote a lot of business proposals um, and with Avon Cosmetics organized a global series of races, uh, which eventually got to 27 countries, five continents, and over a million women. And the data and statistics from those events led to getting the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. So that was huge. That is huge. And I, I feel so thankful just for what you have done because I was born in 1967 and I know that things were not totally equal even when I was in elementary school, but I feel like just some of that groundwork that you laid really paved the way for my generation. You started a nonprofit called 261 Fearless. Can you tell us what that is about and why that was important to you to start? Yeah, I think after the the uh, Olympic inclusion in 1984, I thought we had reached equality because 2.2 billion people watched this event on television. So I figured everybody in the world knew that women could run and would want to run and that, you know, that broke down the barriers. Well, that was extremely naive. And I realized that most of the women in the world uh, still live in a fearful situation. Certainly in 84, they did. And now they, it's more obvious than ever. And I realized that running had changed so many women's lives so positively and that it was easy and cheap and totally accessible, that how could we reach these women with running again uh, in a different way? And, and how can we direct touch them? And we decided, um, first of all, the opportunity made itself. People were sending me pictures of 261 
on their backs, which was my old bib number from the Boston Marathon that the race director tried to pull off me. Right. And they were telling me that this made them this made them feel fearless in the face of adversity. And um, so we thought, well, how can we can use this powerful vehicle and this story to reach out? And basically what we've done is we've created 261 Fearless Nonprofit, which is a series, it's a movement, and it's also an organization that is a series of clubs and interactions and the communications and educational platform where village by village and town by town and country by country, we're creating community clubs that are totally non-judgmental, non-competitive, um, and um, totally uh, uh, open to everybody, open to every woman. And what we try to do is get that woman to take the first step. Because once she takes that first step, once she has a buddy out there, once she has her own little community that, that makes her feel secure and safe, um, she, um, will, she will become fearless and empowered herself. We've seen running do such amazing things. It's, uh, for women, it's absolutely transformational. And we, uh, we're, 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 we're perking right along with this. We, we're only two and a half years old. And we're already in um, in five countries, so I'm really excited. I did not realize it's only been around for two and a half years. That's amazing. Well, you've heard the the story of two six one probably since uh, for fifty two years, probably all right, of your yeah. life. That that number has been flashing before our eyes because that picture of the incident went around the world and became um, you know uh, this very famous number. So uh, yeah. But it has a very young organization. We'd love to have people join us. 261fearless.org. Start a club for the movement. That is awesome. So people can just go to the website and they can find the information on how they can get involved. That's right. And we would welcome them. So uh, starting a club requires that, that you take a training course because it's easy to teach somebody how to run, but it's not easy to teach somebody how to be non-judgmental. Um, and we want these women to realize that they can start their own series of nonprofits, um, and and it can be a small business for them as well if they wanted to make that it, make it happen that way. The organization is very much like Girls on the Run. I was and, just going to say I, that. Yeah, I often say it's like Girls on the Run for grown women, and I happen to think that all those little girls from Girls on the Run are going to grow up and become two six one women, which is great. Okay, that is so cool because I was sitting here thinking. This sounds like a grown-up version of Girls on the Run. And I was like, if I say that to her, am I going to offend her? Because I, I'm a Girls on the Run coach, and I love Girls on the Run. And this just sounds like the grown-up version of it. I had no idea. I cannot thank Girls on the Run enough. Um, when we first came up with this idea, I was doing some speaking for Girls on the Run. And I said, hey, you know, you guys, I was talking to their executive. And I said, look you know, can you help me with this? We don't know what to do with it. You know, I, I really don't want to start another business, you know? And they said, you know, you really should start a nonprofit. And I said, well, that's even worse for me. I have no idea how to start a nonprofit. And so I, uh, we negotiated back and forth and they said, listen, you know, if you brought your team, and there were only three of us, if you brought your team down to North Carolina, to Charlotte for our headquarters, we would give you a day with our team, entire team. And it was fabulous. We went down there and they just gave us the whole drill on how to start a nonprofit and how, to, how girls on the run work. And so we are very closely aligned with them. I love those people. They're wonderful. I think you guys, what you're doing for girls is huge because look, look, my story began as a 12 year old and I was lucky that my dad 
encouraged me to go out and run a mile a day. So I got that empowerment all by myself with his encouragement. But what, what difference it would make for other little girls that didn't have any opportunities like that or were actively discouraged by their parents. Empowerment starts at a really early age. And, it, and the earlier it can start, the, the more long-lasting it is. It lasts your whole life. This is the coolest thing I have heard in a, such a long time because I did not, I knew about 261 Fearless, but I didn't know that that was the thought process behind it. And I keep thinking that there needs to be a girls on the run for grown women for that very same reason, because running can, tr- I think, transform lives. And you, know, you see that with the little girls and girls on the run. And I think it could have the same effect on grown women. So I am so excited to find out about this. Yeah, it definitely has the same effect on grown women. We, we, we are taking women at all ages, but it is an amazing thing to see a 65 or 70 year old woman who has never, ever done anything like this and thinks I couldn't possibly go running suddenly come blossom, become a really amazing person, do things that she never thought she could do in her life. Like, you know, finish an education or, take some courses she never could do or, or, or get a better job or leave a bad relationship. You know, it's running is extremely powerful that way. And so for, for a woman who has missed the whole empowerment opportunity, it's never too late to, to help her out. It really, it is so fantastic. I love it. So that relates to something else I wanted to ask you. You ran your first Boston at the age of 20, and then you ran again at the age of 70, right? For the 50th anniversary. Yeah. What would you say? I did. To, what would you say to people who think they're too old to start exercising or too old to start running? Because clearly you have had a long career as a runner. You know, I would say several things, but the first two are, are the most important. One is that people talk about older people now the way they talked about women 50 years ago they say oh you're too weak to do that you're too fragile you should take care you should be careful you might have a heart attack you might fall down you might hurt yourself you should take it easy when you retire and sit on the sofa for once those are all the worst things people can do and they they say that to old people because they they think that we're like women were 50 years ago weak and fragile (laughs) ha ha You know, it's a joke. It really is. But it's it's our preconceived notions of what aging and decrepitude is. When, in fact, we now have the statistics, uh, the the scientific proof, the uh, longitudinal studies that show that the more you exercise, um, and especially running, the more regular you are about it, um, the longer you live. And then, and the more optimistically you live. So, for instance, a study out of Stanford University says that runners actually live on the average of seven years longer, and they have a mental attitude 14 years younger than their peer group. So, what that means is, um, let's say you're 80 years old, okay? Um, are you going to be in a nursing home, or are you going to be out still traveling and having fun with your friends and um, living in your own home? Right. See, those are the th- those are the things we've got to look at. You don't think about it so much when you're like fifty and you're still pretty spry, but then things start falling off and and you get a little nervous and you say, oh, I don't know if I should take that hike. I don't know if I should do that. You should. Um, and the other thing I say to people is, you, 
the body always improves with work. Training works, and it works at any age. So you are never too old to start an exercise program. Um, it's 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 uh, it it's always. Uh, I wish I had an expression for it, but anyway, basically, you're never too old to start an exercise exercise program. Ah, yes, yes, you're never too old to start an exercise program, but you're too young to quit. That's what it is. Oh, very good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, so there are studies on this too. I mean, I could bore you to tears, but basically, um, I think it was Tufts University many years ago did weight training programs with bedridden patients in a nursing home and found that those, uh, those patients recovered something like, uh, as much as 90% of their muscle mass. So it's huge. It's huge. The body, the body is even, even in decline is constantly changing and growing. It always it wants so, to move. So amazing how we can benefit from exercise. And I'm sure that we will be learning for years and years more than we even understand right now. Now, I I love to do, I love to do things like this to talk to people because um, especially the younger generation and you would be the younger generation. I gather you are what? uh, 52, 53. Yes, I am. Yep. Okay. So, cause if you're born in 67, you got to be 52, 53. Uh, So, so you are that next generation, but it's, I believe like the millennials are paying a lot of attention to this because they're going to be leading that revolution. You know, we, the senior games, which I'm going to participate in in Albuquerque in June. Um, yeah. There, there's something like 12,000 people over, you know, over age 60 or whatever competing in these games. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they, they are the, they are the pioneers. You guys are going to be the precursors. Um, and, and you're going to be creating maybe the senior games eventually are going to be as popular as the Olympic games. Who knows? Who knows? You know, we don't know that. We don't know that yet. <laughs> the, the Olympic games are no big deal for quite a while, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so you, you, you know, your generation is going to be making the rules, creating new sports, creating new attitudes. It's all going to be changing. And it's, it's a great time. It's a great time for, um, a discussion of aging and physicality. So I have a bunch of female masters runners. I asked them, what is the biggest thing that they would want to know from you? And everybody wants to know, what are your secrets to being able to run for such a long time, to have such a long career? First of all, I had a 32-year break from marathon running. Uh-huh. Not not from running. I always ran. And some years, I ran a lot less than I ran in other years. So I think what I have done is I've never over really overstressed my body. There was a time in my 20s when I trained like a maniac, over 100 miles a week, two, two times a day training. But I was ambitious. I was very ambitious. And I wanted the credibility of being um, you know, nationally ranked athlete. Um, and I eventually in 1975 ran a 251 marathon. So that, that satisfied my urge for, um, for, you know, feeling that I, I counted as an athlete, not, not just as a jogger. I felt that I was a, a real athlete. Um, and, and then after that, you know, I concentrated completely on, women's equality and creating these opportunities. And so my run was strictly recreational. 
Sure. I'd pin on a lot of bid numbers. I'd go up to a half marathon often, um, but I wouldn't do the marathon distance. I I said, I've run enough marathons. I don't need to run anymore. And then, of course, along about age 62, I was meeting women who were 65 and 70 who were just starting to run. And they were running marathons. They were running, uh, you know, the up and down Pikes Peak. They were doing amazing things. And I was jealous. So I said, I wonder mm-hmm. if I could get back in marathon shape. I gave it 18 months and I did. And then I started looking at the calendar and I said, holy smokes, you know, I could I could run some of the races that I've always wanted to run. And many that didn't exist when I was a world-class athlete. So if my last marathon, world-class marathon, was 1976, which it was, do you see the New York City Marathon was really quite new. The London Marathon hadn't been created. Um, Berlin hadn't yet been created. So these were events that happened in my lifetime. I was a part of making them happen, and I wanted to run them. So it was great to start picking up some, like Berlin, London, uh, Athens. And then I looked and I said, oh, you're going to be... 70 on your 50th anniversary of the Boston Marathon, wouldn't it be great to see if you could be ready to run the Boston Marathon again? And when I'm on April 17th, 2017, I've got to tell you, um, it was the happiest day of my life. Not because I was the first woman who ever did that, because that's a testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago, but it was the happiest day of my life because. You know, I have to look back in 67. I was the only woman wearing a good number. And then in 2017, 50 years later, we, we had reached equality. I was the only woman in 1967 wearing a bib number in the Boston Marathon. And then 2017, half of the field were women. So I was surrounded by 13,500 women in the Boston Marathon, all wearing bibs and all having that sense of huge empowerment and that people along the way were cheering me and having two, six, one signs and uh, knowing what we were trying to accomplish and what we had accomplished. It was a fabulous, fabulous day for women and crossing the finish line. I mean, I ran well, I ran only 24 minutes slower than I did when I first ran. It was, it was really astonishing for me. And I um, was met at the finish line by my husband and by with Joanne Flaminio, who is the first woman president of the Boston Athletic Association in 135 years, I felt we had achieved so much. We had achieved equality in this race and in marathon running, and uh, that the sky was the limit. And I knew then that 261 was doing the right thing, that reaching out into the world and helping women feel that way was important. But here's the point. I didn't quite answer your question, but the question was, I, I, what's different about my running and the reason I think I have longevity is, first of all, I'm grateful for good health. Um, that's also luck in many ways for us. But for me, I was very lucky. Uh, when I feel an injury coming, I stop. I'd rather lose three days of training than three weeks. And I'd rather lose three weeks of training than three months. So, um, you know, when, when you're starting to get hurt, fix it. Um, I change up my shoes often and I change surfaces from running on hard surfaces to soft surfaces. And I work really hard on my core. Core, core work, midsection work is extremely important for your balance and also for your stride um, and your overall strength. Critically important. And the final thing I do that nobody else does except one person I know is every night before I go to bed, I have a glass of milk because my bone strength is quite phenomenal and I want to keep that up. 
Um, it's, it's never too late to start taking calcium, but for women who are, are um, still having menstrual periods and certainly for teenage girls, having a lot of calcium and drinking a lot of milk is extremely important. All great advice. And what do you think about recovery or ways that, how should a master's runner switch up their training to make sure that they are getting the recovery so that they are improving still and able to continue running? To me, I think that lack of recovery is a big problem. It is. In fact, um, I, I went into this one kicking and screaming, thinking, getting ready for Boston uh, and giving myself 18 months to get ready for it. Um, I was going to think, oh, am I going to have to go back to two workouts a day? It's going to be problematic with all the work I've got to do. And the physio I was working with said, I don't even want you to run every day. I want you to run every other day. I said, no, I could never get ready in time. She said, trust me, the recovery at your age is more important or is as important as the training. And you're going to have better quality training with good recovery. You're going to feel better. And in fact, I did. I was anxious every day to get out and run, but she didn't let me off the hook. On the opposite days, I had to do the core work. So so it was strength and recovery, then training. Strength, recovery, training. Um, and it was a great formula. It was a great formula. That sounds like it could be magical for a lot of women too, because I just think they're, they put, people put so much pressure on themselves to run, 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 be total type A all the time. And they don't, they underestimate how important that rest and the strength training is. Absolutely. Here's the other thing. They feel guilty if they don't do this. They just run out and have a trashy run and come back rather than say, okay, I'm going to, I, I think the important thing is for them not to feel guilty about missing a run and to just try a new system of running every other day, because then when it's time to run, you feel really excited about it and not at all about um, guilty. Yep. That's so important too. So I will ask you one last question, but before I get to that, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? And if not, go ahead and give everybody your information about how they can find you and get involved. You can find, you can find me on my own website, which is marathonwoman.com, or you can find me and my organization, which is what I prefer you look at, at 261fearless.org. And think about starting a community club. You know, it would be really good for you too. And it would help your training because you, you focus would also be on other people. And I find that when you give more away, you get more back. Yes. Yes. Excellent. My final question, the one I ask at the end of every episode is that power up your performance is all about learning how to think, feel, and live like a champion. So I'd like to ask everybody I interview, what are three traits that you believe all champions possess? Okay. I think that a true champion has a sense that what they do is more than winning, that there's a bigger picture in life. It's sort of living what matters, not just winning. A true champion, in my view, always passes it on to the next generation um, or anybody around them. 
uh, and they make the effort to do that because uh, uh, there's so much talent out there. It only needs an opportunity. And the third thing I think that makes a champion is someone who knows that they're inside, perfectly ordinary person who is willing to work hard and make something happen, that they're not entirely as special as the world thinks you are. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you shared. That was awesome. Great, Kim. I'm delighted. And I want to wish everybody all the best, good health and happiness. Keep moving and keep happy. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I'm Coach Kim Peek of Power of Run, and you can find me at www.crushingmygoals.com or on all social media as at sign power of run. If you liked this episode, be sure to give the podcast some love over on iTunes and remember to subscribe. As a new podcast, your reviews and stars and subscribes will help me grow the audience so that I can share my love of health and fitness and bring more experts to the show. Power up your week and I will catch you next Tuesday.